another few verses. This is from Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. So this is the third of our series of, of sermons about who Jesus is. And as Barry said, today we're looking at Jesus the King. I want you to imagine that you're a Jewish pilgrim. You're heading for Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. You've been walking for a few days from your home, and now you're getting near to the city shortly before the feast. And ahead of you, you can see and hear some sort of disturbance with a crowd of people shouting and waving palm branches. Your first reaction is your concern. Is it a riot starting? Are the Romans suddenly going to descend on us? But as you get closer, you start to make out what it is they're shouting. Blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Okay, that's not a riot. And amongst the crowd, you suddenly realize that there's a man riding on a donkey, and a young donkey at that. Now, a donkey isn't a big animal. In fact, because it's a, the donkeys are relatively small, the man riding on it doesn't stand out the way he would if he was on a horse, where he would be well above the crowd. If you look at the picture up there, and I'm sorry it's not the greatest quality, you can just make out someone riding on a donkey behind the palm branches and the top, maybe just his head above the heads of the crowd. He's not dressed differently to anyone else, but all the commotion seems to be focused on him. So you turn to someone beside you and say, who is this? Now, I'm sure you've recognized that situation as Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The Jewish pilgrims, at least those not from Galilee, might not have known who Jesus was, but they potentially recognized the message in both his actions and in the acclaim of the rest of the crowd. By coming into the city on a donkey this way, Jesus was making a direct claim to be the Messiah, the Christ of God, i.e. the anointed king by doing what was described in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And some of the crowd that day, whether consciously or subconsciously, recognized that and responded to that claim both in putting the palm branches and their cloaks in the road in front of him, which was a sign of a royal welcome, and in their shouts where they proclaimed him the king. 
what do we think a king is? If I said you describe a king, what would you come up with? A man in rich robes, clothes, wearing a crown? Sorry, no crown on this one, but you get the point. Someone riding in a golden coach with an escort of soldiers. A warrior knight leading his army. Well, probably not that one. For the people of Jesus' time, we need to remember monarchy was absolute, not constitutional monarchy the way we have. Kings had the power of life and death over their subjects. Think about Herod. He had John the Baptist put in prison because he basically told him off for, for marrying his brother's wife. And then he had him beheaded almost as a whim as a reward for his stepdaughter dancing for him, which you can read about in Matthew 14. Kings were above the law. They set the law. They could rule on that whim. God isn't an arbitrary human ruler with all the whims and lack of consistency that might result. But he is, nevertheless, the absolute ruler of his creation and was something we would do well to remember. But going back to Palm Sunday, what was the crowd expecting? The Jewish view of the coming king, the Messiah, at that time, was most definitely not a suffering servant that, was, that we see in Isaiah 53. Nor did they expect the Christ to come from Galilee. As it says in John 7, 41 to 42, someone said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. Hasn't the scripture said the Messiah comes from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? Of course, we know that Jesus did come from Bethlehem. That's where he was born. He just grew up in Nazareth, and a lot of his ministry took place in Galilee. But the Jews also had a clear idea of what they did expect from their king. They thought that God was going to rule over all the heathen nations, the Gentiles, and particularly Rome, the occupying power, through a Messiah and through an emancipated Jewish nation. The spiritual aspects of God's kingdom, they'd largely neglected and swept under the carpet. They were looking for a new King David who beat the Philistines, a new Judas Maccabeus who beat the, the uh, Macedonian successor armies, to someone who was going to defeat the Romans in battle, restore the glory of Israel, and establish an independent Jewish kingdom. And that was the reason that the Romans particularly were very wary of any claim by somebody to messiahship, especially as they kept leading to rebellion after rebellion by people claiming to be that person. If you want to see an example of that, if you look in Acts chapter 5, 35 to 36, Gamaliel, a member of the Jewish council, was reminding the council when they were trying to stop the apostles preaching about Jesus after his ascension of some of the recent events of Judas and Thaddeus who had created rebellions and eventually had been killed and, and things had dispersed. And as a consequence, Jesus was very careful during his ministry to avoid being associated with that prevalent, materialistic, very human view of the kingship of the Messiah. When he fed 5,000 men, plus all the women and children, they wanted to come and make him king by force, and he withdrew from them. Read that in John 6. And when Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah, which is recorded in various places, but Luke 9 18 to 21 is an obvious one. Jesus forbade the disciples to tell anybody because it would just spark off things that weren't what he wanted to achieve. 
when he healed people, which is something that, that was foretold by the prophet. For example, look at Isaiah 45, 5 and 6, or Isaiah 61, verse 1, where it talks about the Messiah being a healing person. Quite often, he forbade the person to speak about it. And when he cast out demons who knew who he was, he forbade the demons from actually saying that out loud. At his trial before Pilate, however, when he was asked if he was the king of the Jews, Jesus was very clear that he was a king, but not a king of a kingdom of this world. Jesus made it clear he wasn't a physical threat to the Roman Empire. And if you look at that passage where it says a kingdom of this world, we tend to think of a kingdom as in kingdom, um, you know, as in a human kingdom, the, king, the kingdom of Rome or the empire of Rome, the kingdom of Great Britain. In this case, that of might be better read as from. Jesus' kingdom isn't from this world, but it is most definitely over this world. Pilate was perplexed by the way Jesus was acting during his interrogation. It wasn't like a normal suspect. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't deferential. He wasn't hesitant. He, wasn't, he didn't appear to be worried about the fate that awaited him. He was acting more like a ruler, more like a king as he was being interrogated. Almost as if Jesus was in charge of the proceedings there, not Pilate. So much so that Pilate actually asked Jesus if he understood what authority Pilate had. He said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know I have power to release you and power to crucify you? But Jesus said to him, you have no power over me unless it's been given to you from above. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus has no authority on earth. We can see Jesus' authority in his teaching. Everyone noted he taught with authority in the fact that he healed people. Because that's not something that happens every day. When he drove out demons, he had authority over Satan. And in the way he could command the elements, he calmed the storm. He cursed the fig tree. And he also made it very clear to the disciples in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. It was his authority that we were called to go out in. Even in Jesus' birth, before Jesus' birth, the angel Gabriel announced that Jesus was the son of God and would take the throne of David and would reign over Israel forever. You can find in Luke 1. And soon after his birth, Jesus was recognized as the Messiah by Simeon in the temple. And sometimes later by the, Mag uh, the Magi who came from the east. You know, these men were determined they were going to find the new king of the Jews. They traveled about 1,500 miles to, to worship the king and cause a fair disturbance on the way. Even Herod the Great recognized there was a king coming. Only in his case, he recognized a threat, a rival. And when he couldn't kill Jesus by getting the wise men to come and tell him uh, where they'd found him, he then went and killed all the under two male children in the area of Bethlehem. During his ministry, Jesus was recognized by the Roman centurion at Capernaum as a man with authority, Matthew 8, 5 to 13. 
a Gentile soldier, someone who served the Roman Empire, was the first man to publicly recognize and acknowledge Jesus' authority. It was another centurion at Jesus' crucifixion who said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And not only he, but his men we saw what took place and were terrified. They were hardened professional soldiers. They had years of service. To be a centurion, you had to serve for at least 15 years to get promoted. They had a lot of experience of soldiering and of death. To make an impression on men like these, to the point they would make that sort of claim, there had to be something very remarkable about Jesus, his behavior, and the events surrounding his death. And then one of the criminals crucified with Jesus also acknowledged this kingship. One of them was hanged there, kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him. Don't you fear God? We deserve what we're getting. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Even Pilate, although he was using the words to strike back at the Jewish leaders who had humiliated him in during the trial and forced him into a corner so he had little choice but to condemn Jesus, declared Jesus a king in the charge notice that he had fastened to the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, written in Greek, Latin and Hebrew, so everybody present could read it. But Jesus also spoke of the future time when the kingdom of God would be fully realized, when he would return to earth in power and glory. In Matthew 13, 24 to 30, and then 36 to 43, and in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 31, the bit of chapter 25 we didn't read today, Jesus describes that time in parables and in their explanation for it. And Jesus was more explicit with his disciples. Matthew 24, 4 to 31, Luke 21, 25 to 27, and the passage we've read today in Matthew 25 about Jesus coming back. He'll be coming in power and glory. He'll be coming to judge the world. So. There are many, however, who have a view that because God is love, which is what the Bible tells us, that he will ultimately not condemn anyone, but will all end up in heaven. Now, that may make people feel good. It certainly gives you a nice comfort factor. But let me be very clear, it is also very, very wrong. God doesn't want anyone to be condemned. Peter recorded it. The Lord's not slow about his promise to come. Not as some of you think slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away, and everything that is done will be disclosed. Jesus himself was very clear there was going to be a judgment, as we saw in, in the passage that Barry read for us. And there are only two verdicts coming out of that, eternal life or eternal punishment. The difference between the two, though, isn't whether we give money, food, or drink to beggars, or whether we're part of a prison visiting program. What we do 
can't affect our eternal destination. We can't earn our way into heaven. What we do is the consequence of what we believe, where our heart is, whether we're driven by human, earthly desires, or by the Holy Spirit. God's standard is that we live perfectly, that we love him with all our hearts, all our minds, all our strength, and all our souls, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. And Steve and I haven't been colluding. That passage that you read, I'd already built into this sometime before. We've read it before. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. On that hang all the law and the prophets. Can we honestly say that we've done that? Not just some of the time, or even most of the time, but all of the time. If we can't then, we've sinned, because God's standard is perfection. Back in Leviticus, speak to the congregation of the people of Israel, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We're expected to be holy like God. Breaking one bit of God's law is the same as breaking all of it. There is no such thing as a small sin. Jesus made that point in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Just one of the bits. You've heard it said in ancient times, you shall not murder. Well, nobody here, I, I hope, has murdered anybody. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you're liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you're liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. That's pretty harsh. But it should make us realize how far from God's standard, from obeying the king fully, we really are. Think about it. When did you last mutter, idiot, when you saw someone's poor driving, when they cut you up on the 303? When you hear about the antics of a celebrity or a politician, perhaps particularly pertinent after Prince Andrew's um, interview last night. And when we fail to meet God's standard, we can't make up for it by doing better next time. We fall short of the 100% that's required by our actions and lack of them are only a symptom, symptom of what's really wrong in our hearts. We don't start life as perfect and then sin. We're born sinners in rebellion against God. Think about a young toddler. Those of you who are parents, I'm sure this will ring bells. They have an innate desire to put themselves first. Hence, you get the tantrums. I'm not going to go to bed. I'm not going to put my toys away. I'm not going to do this. We, everything's flying everywhere. While we get older, we do get better at hiding it. And our tantrums get more subtle and more sophisticated. But this nature still lurks in each one of us. We want our way rather than God's way. We want to put ourselves first rather than other people. And most definitely, we want to put ourselves before God. We're inherently rebels. We disobey the rule of Jesus the King. And we've been that way since the fall and Adam's original disobedience. Now, non-Christians will often say, and you heard them saying, the church is full of hypocrites. While we aren't in the way they typically mean, which is we're saying we're holy, they're not, that we're perfect in some way. But in many ways, we can be hypocritical. 
Are we loving God with all our hearts, our soul, and our strength? Are we putting him first and our desires and wants last? Are we praying, lead us not into temptation? And then putting ourselves into temptations way by what we do, what we read, what we Google. We can't serve two sovereigns completely, or we'll end up serving one and not the other. Yeah, too often we try to serve Jesus and ourselves at the same time. Jesus put it this way, no one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate one and love the other, will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. We need to commit to one master or the other. Moses challenged the people of Israel to do exactly that in his last speech to them at the end of Deuteronomy. And look how binary the choice is. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set you before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him, holding fast to him. But that means life to you and length of days so you may live in the land. But this isn't something we can do on our own. Paul summed it up, and I think this probably passage in Romans 7 probably is something that we all can relate to. And yeah. no, nothing good dwells in me, because I can will to do what is right, but I can't do it. I don't do the good I want, but the evil I don't want, that's what I do. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's not me that's doing it, it's the sin that's in me. So I find it to be a law. When I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another war at, law, at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? This is a hopeless situation from a human point of view. We can't get out of that mess. But God has stepped in to address it through Jesus. You probably know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. God didn't send the son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him aren't condemned, but those who don't believe are condemned already because they haven't believed in the only name of the only son of God. Jesus showed us how to live by his example, how in his kingdom leadership is about being the servant of others, about laying down our lives for others and for him. Early in the sermon, I asked what images came to your mind when you thought of a king. I doubt very much that any of us immediately thought of a naked man, whipped bloody, in agony, nailed to a wooden cross in front of a jeering crowd. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus, God's suffering servant, Jesus the King, Jesus the Son of God, crucified, dying to save you, to save me, to pay the penalty that we have each earned by our rebellion and our sin against God, to save us from the judgment that will happen when he returns in glory. Now, we don't know when that return will be. It could be today. It might be years away. But one thing we can be uncertain of is that we are all going to meet Jesus face to face at that point in the future. And at that time, 
whether you've accepted him as your king and savior now or you haven't, everybody will bow before him. This is the passage I read earlier. You know, at that time, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I hope I'm not going to scare you now, but we're probably all aware that Christmas is only five and a half weeks away. It's a time when gifts are given. When we give somebody a Christmas present or a birthday present or any other present, we don't expect the recipient that with something we give to pay for it. it. For them, it's a free gift. That's what gift means. No matter what the cost to us is, it's a free gift. But they do need to accept it. I can stand and hold a present out, but if you don't take it, you haven't made it yours. We expect them to open it, to tear off the wrappings and make use of whatever's inside. Now at Christmas and at Easter, God gave the world an amazing gift because he sent Jesus into the world, his son, the king, to live, to die and be raised again, to pay the penalty for our sins, to free us from our enslavement to sin. Jesus, the king, gave himself as a sacrifice for us. And forgiveness and being accepted into God's family, therefore, is available to each one of us as a free gift. But we each individually need to accept that gift, to take it, to make it ours. That means accepting Jesus as our king, accepting what he did for us, and then living our lives in response to his love. In Ephesians, Paul put, put it this way, by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not from your own doing, it's a gift of God, not the result of work so no one can boast. For we are what he made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The works follow. So your, as I said earlier, it's your mindset. Because you're following God, then you will do good things. Why didn't the sheep in Matthew 25 recognize when they've given those things, when they've been visited the sick, when they've given people food? Because it was just the way they were. It was their natural way of living. And the same with the goats. They hadn't done it because they were still self-centered and they walked past the beggar in the street without even noticing he was there. Jesus taught us there is a judgment and the charge that so many are gonna be convicted and condemned for is not believing in Jesus, not accepting him as king of our, our lives. The old saying has it, there are two universal experiences, death and taxes, but there's a third. So we've seen, we will all bow before Jesus and recognize him as king. However, each of us will bow in one of two different ways. We might be bowing in fear and trembling or in adoration and praise. We might bow before him now by accepting him while the gift of his salvation is available or when he returns, when it's too late. We're bowing for judgment or for reward. We each have a choice accept Jesus as our king and submit to him, or persist in our rebellion and be forced to kneel before him in fear. Which group will you be in? If you haven't made that commitment to Jesus, if you haven't accepted him as your king, don't put it off. Make your choice today. 
As Moses put it before the people of Israel, choose life, choose life so you may live. Let's pray together.